The scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 9, verses 13 to 35. And Yahweh said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For I will this time send all my plagues upon your heart and upon your servants and upon your people, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For now I would have put forth my hand and smitten you and your people with pestilence, and you've been cut off from the earth. But in very deed for this cause I have I made you to stand to show you my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. As yet you exalt yourself against my people, that you will not let them go. Behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause it to rain a very grievous hail such as has not been in Egypt since the day it was founded, even until now. And now send, hasten in your livestock and all that you have in the field, every man and beast that shall be found in the field and shall not be brought home. The hail shall come down upon them, and they shall die. He who feared the word of Yahweh among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. And he who did not regard the word of Yahweh left his servants and his livestock in the field. And Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch forth your hand toward the heavens, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, upon man and upon beast, and upon every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched forth his rod toward the heavens. And Yahweh sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And Yahweh rained hail upon the land of Egypt. So there was hail, and fire mingled with the hail, very grievous, such as had not been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail smote through all the land of Egypt, all that was in the field, from man even unto beast. And the hail smote every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, was there no hail. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. Yahweh is righteous, and I and my people are wicked. Entreat Yahweh, and there has been enough thunder of God and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. And Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread abroad my hands to Yahweh. The thunder shall cease, and the hail shall be no more, that you may know that the earth is Yahweh's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear Yahweh God. And the flax and the barley were smitten, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bloom. And the wheat and the spelt were not smitten, for they had not grown up. And Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread abroad his hands to Yahweh, and the thunders and the hail ceased, and the rain was not poured upon the earth. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunders had ceased, he sinned yet more and hardened his heart, he and his servants." And the heart of Pharaoh waxed bold, and he did not let the children of Israel go, as Yahweh had spoken by the hand of Moses. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would direct us now in your holy word, and that indeed the preaching of your word would be used for the purposes to which you have, have made it and given it that your people might hear your word, that they might be transformed by it. Indeed, may your spirit help us to these ends. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. For those of you who have ever played video games, 
whether the likes of Super Mario Brothers, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, or countless others, or watched action movies, particularly in the martial arts genre, you're familiar with the idea of having to, to defeat bosses in order to clear a level, in order to eventually get to the final boss, the main antagonist, in order to get the girl, save the day, win the game, etc. And basically, with each level, things are progressively more challenging, and the boss is more difficult to defeat, and so on. In the movie setting, the hero you know, gets through one opponent, perhaps just barely defeating him, and then the seemingly possible uh, task of the next one looms large. Well, well there's, there's something of that feel when we come to this last cycle of plagues, though we have to tweak the analogy a little bit. See, clearly, Pharaoh isn't the hero trying to defeat Yahweh, uh, but as we've noticed in weeks past, the first three plagues were largely those of inconvenience. The second cycle ramped up the intensity a bit more, directly affecting the Egyptian economy and their physical persons. But now there's a sense that the real plagues are coming, which is even indicated in, in what Yahweh says in verse 14 of our text. See, he's leveling things up. He's, he's raising the intensity, and there's a great deal of theology then that's communicated in the text. And here we have the longest plague account thus far, over 20 verses worth, which particularly includes Yahweh's explanation to Pharaoh regarding the plagues. So we go from one of the shortest accounts with the sixth plague to the longest or one of the longest in the seventh as the third plague cycle is introduced and begins. And what's the clue that this is the beginning of the third cycle? Well, Yahweh's command to Moses in verse 13. Rise up early in the morning and stand before the face of Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, God of the Hebrews, send out my people and they may serve me. A morning meeting with Pharaoh is the common element in plagues 1, 4, and 7. And we have the usual command for him to send out the Hebrew people. But there's a change in the rhythm of the text, even as just mentioned, as Yahweh provides a greater explanation to Pharaoh in verses 14 through 16. Verse 14. For this time I am sending all my plagues upon your heart and on your servants and on your people in order that you may know that there's none like me in all the earth. So clearly Yahweh is making a distinction between what happened before and what's about to happen. And the plagues are directed against Pharaoh, literally his heart, his, his servants, which we should understand to be primarily his royal advisors and officers, and his people. Note the threefold pattern there of heart, servants, and people. And we've observed triads on other occasions. And the plagues are sent against Pharaoh's heart. Well, this is hardly the first time uh, Pharaoh's heart has been mentioned, but for Yahweh to speak of it in this way is new. In Scripture, the heart is considered the center or seat of, of your being, but we can also say that the plagues would go to the center of Egypt's culture. You know, we shouldn't forget... Uh, the, the religion that underlies all of this and that Egypt's gods are also under judgment, which means that there's a sense in which Jesus, uh, Egypt's whole way of life is under judgment. There really is no separation of, of church and state or religion and, and culture. And what's the purpose for these plagues? That you, singular, that Pharaoh may know that there's none like Yahweh in all the earth. Here's the first use of the word earth or sometimes tra translated land in this section which by my count occurs a total of eight times but we're brought back to the familiar theme of knowing aren't we 
And this takes us back to Pharaoh's claim not to know Yahweh back in chapter 5. And of course, that's getting harder and harder for Pharaoh to admit. And we've seen him make some admissions along the way. But his knowing is still central to the events of the Exodus. And Yahweh's demanding a certain exclusivity. That there's none like him. That he stands apart. That he's distinct from the Egyptian pantheon of gods. Verses 15 to 17. For by now I could have sent forth my hand and struck you and your people with a pestilence and you would have been hidden from the earth. Indeed, on account of this, I have caused you to stand or to remain in order to cause you to see my strength and for the purpose to declare my name in all the earth. Still, you are exalting yourself against my people so as not to send them out. Now, let's consider the logic of Yahweh's argument. In verse 15, he contends that he could have completely wiped out Pharaoh and his people through pestilence, uh, through a plague. This is the same word that's used in verse 2 of the pestilence against the livestock. Perhaps part of the implication is that Yahweh was holding back and it could have been much worse. But Yahweh hasn't erased Egypt from the face of the earth, but has actually caused them to stand, to remain, in order to show Pharaoh his strength, his, his power, for the purpose of declaring Yahweh's name in all the earth. Now this raises a number of interesting points. Notice it was within Yahweh's power to have already wiped them out, to send forth his hand, which symbolizes power. But he's shown patience. Why? Well, in order to display his power, to cause Pharaoh to see Yahweh's strength but also for a declaration to be made regarding Yahweh's name in all the earth. In other words, the Exodus events, the plagues in particular, are for the purposes of going beyond the borders of Egypt. This isn't just an isolated event between Pharaoh and Yahweh, between Egypt and Israel, but for the purpose of Yahweh's name spreading to the other nations. Yahweh wants his reputation to be public to gain some more notoriety, which will later benefit Israel. Now, Yahweh brought Egypt, uh, brought Israel out of Egypt in the sight of the nations. They know what Yahweh did to Egypt and what he can do to other nations. Still, it's somewhat striking that there's this, this broader mission, this, this broader goal for Yahweh's name to go forth to all the earth, which might, might uh, rightly remind us of what we call the Great Commission, and Jesus commanded the disciples to disciple the nations and to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to the ends of the earth. This rightly reminds us of Pentecost and the fame of Christ spreading, even as there's only one name under heaven whereby men must be saved. There's certainly a sense that what gains fuller bloom in, in, and flower in the New Testament is found in seed form in the Old. You know, the type points forward to the fullness. But Yahweh is also clear to declare through Moses Pharaoh's ongoing sin and how he's exalting himself and won't send out his people. Well, what is this but the continuing dynamics of the struggle for power and authority? Yahweh's winning round after round, proving himself again and again, but Pharaoh is stubborn and really is fooling no one. Well, that brings us to the official announcement of the next plague. But as we've noted in previous weeks, there's mercy displayed. Verses 18 and 19. Behold, I will cause raining at this time tomorrow. Hail, very heavy, as such as has not been its like in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. And now send to take refuge your cattle and all which is to you in the field. For 
all man and all livestock which is found in the field is not gathered in the house and shall come down upon them the hail and they shall die. Now observe, when will this happen? Tomorrow, which raises a familiar theme, meaning there's time to take action before the plague comes. But then what do we notice? Well, Yahweh gives specific instructions for the Egyptians to take, telling them to get their men and animals, those in the field, into the house. Otherwise, they'll be killed by the hail. Now notice the specific mention of the field once again. What's the field designate? The area in which man works, the sphere for his labor. Of course, there's mention of livestock, of cattle again, which tells us the Egyptians still have some at this point whether they preserved some indoors uh, before or they bought some from the Israelites uh, since the fifth plague. But notice explicitly the possibility of the death of men that can take place. This is something new. It's a, a step up in the intensity upon man from the boils in the sixth plague. That plague made life miserable. This plague can kill And did you catch where Yahweh tells them to put man and beast in the house, in their homes? Consider, the sixth plague involved a dust cloud that could block the sun. Now there's a command to get inside because death is coming. Jump ahead to the ninth plague, the plague of darkness. And then what is entailed in the tenth? Getting inside the house where the blood marks the door so that death passes over. So the sequence of plagues 6 and 7 foreshadows 9 and 10. Perhaps we should even be reminded of Noah, his family, and the animals inside the ark and being spared from the waters of God's judgment. So what's the reaction to Yahweh's message through Moses that we find in verses 20 to 21? Those fearing the word of Yahweh among the servants of Pharaoh caused to flee his servants and his cattle into the houses. And those that did not set his heart to the word of Yahweh... He left his servants and his cattle in the field. Now, there's an uh, interesting expansion of audience here, isn't there? You know, primarily the focus has been on Yahweh's word and Pharaoh, but now the servants of Pharaoh come more fully into the picture. And there were mixed reactions to Yahweh's word. Some believed and others didn't. But this also further supports the narrative that some of the Egyptians are, you know, were coming around. That they see what's going on, what's taking place, and aren't as stubborn in their sin and unbelief as Pharaoh. On the other hand, there are others that are perfectly in step with Pharaoh and pay no heed whatsoever to the word of Yahweh. And once again, as we're here studying Exodus, this should remind us and and send our minds forth to the ministry of Jesus and how the Jewish leaders were so adamantly opposed to him, particularly the chief priests in Sanhedrin. But over time, some of them came to, to understand who Jesus was and to Jesus' way. Nicodemus, for one. And even what do we read later in Acts chapter 6? And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Of course, plenty did not, but you get the point, and the pattern is there. Well, next, in verses 22 to 26, tomorrow arrives, and this is what we're told. And Yahweh said to Moses, stretch forth your hand unto the heavens, and there will be hail in all the land of Egypt, upon the man and upon the livestock, and upon all the green plants of the field and all the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his rod unto the heavens, and Yahweh gave thunder, 
and hail and came down fire to the earth. And Yahweh caused hail to rain down upon all the land of Egypt. And there was hail and fire flashing about in the midst of the hail, very heavy, such as had not been seen in all the land of Egypt from when it became a nation. And the hail struck down in all the land of Egypt, all which was in the field, from man and unto livestock, and every plant of the field the hail struck down, and every tree of the field shattered. Only in the land of Goshen, which there, which there were the sons of Israel, was there not hail. Let's notice a few de- details about how the text is written. Now, in the space of, of these five verses, five times mention is made of the land of Egypt, which almost seems unnecessary. But the text is emphasizing what's happening to the land, and even Yahweh's exercising His power over it. And then you have all this information about the destruction that's taking place. But then, what's in the last line, and what's the contrast? Only in the land of Goshen, which there were the sons of Israel, was there not hail. So appreciate the artistry of the texture. The land of Egypt is getting absolutely pounded. And you have all of these words and all of these sentences relaying that. But then you have this single sentence at the end of the section. And you have this impression that all is calm and quiet in Goshen. In verse 22, Yahweh gives Moses the command to stretch forth his hand. Hand equates power. And then verse 23, we read that Moses stretches out his, his rod. And this is the same rod from Sinai, also called the rod of God. And the hand and rod go together, indicating power. And, and in this third cycle, the rod of Moses, the rod of God, has a significant role in enacting the plagues. Recall, the, Aaron, uh, the rod of Aaron was key in plagues 1 through 3, plagues 4 through 6. There's no mention of rods just Yahweh acting, and now the rod of Moses, the rod of God, will be used in plague 7 through 9. So Yahweh gives the command, Moses obeys, and the plague of hail comes. And what's basically being described here sounds like a a severe thunderstorm, doesn't it? Uh, The severity of which might be hard for us to imagine. There's there's thunder, or that can even be rendered uh, literally a voice or a sound. And so it almost gives the impression that thunder is the voice of God. There's fire from heaven, probably lightning, and of course, the hail itself. And when we step back and look at the whole of this section, some other numeric patterns in word usage emerge. Seven times the word field is used. Fourteen times hail is used. Ten times land or earth is used. And then five times thunder or voice is used. Seven is number of completion, echoing the creation week, and fourteen is seven times two. Ten is also a number of com- completion, also a doubling of five, again associated with power. And then what does the text go on to tell us that the hailstorm destroys or kills? Man, livestock, plants, and trees. What's going on here? Well, you can probably guess. Decreation. The most significant example thus far in any of the plagues or plague cycles. Now, maybe the question has crossed your mind. Well, how does... This plague fit into the triple-decker universe model since hail falls out of the sky, out of the heavens. Well, that's a fair question. But what's hail? Well, it's frozen water. And of course, this water comes from the heavens. And part of what's pictured here is water coming from the firmament or the waters above the earth. And that's a bit of a twist on things. So you've got this unprecedented thunderstorm. There's been nothing like it 
um, since Egypt was founded, since it became a nation. You know, the, the weather channel in Egypt would have to report it was the worst hailstorm, hailstorm ever, the most severe in Egyptian history. But thunder and lightning and fire and clouds are associated with what event or what taking place later in, in Exodus? Well, the glory cloud which settles on the top of Mount Sinai. So here in the seventh plague, we're getting a bit of, of a foretaste of that, so to speak, and should understand this plague as a, as a heavenly invasion after a fashion. Or we could say Yahweh's launching an artillery attack from heaven. Psalm 104 begins, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messenger winds. He ministers a flaming fire. So imagine these storm clouds as Yahweh's chariot. and He's riding over Egypt, throwing down hailstones and lightning strikes, thundering all the while. You know, the Norse god Thor has nothing on Yahweh, nor the various Egyptian gods associated with sky and moisture. You know, and don't think of the hail as just kind of pebble size, which um, many of you have probably seen at some point. But imagine it larger, you know, possibly as big as a baseball or even bigger. And the catastrophic damage it causes makes all the more sense. You know, baseball is pretty hard. And some of you have been hit by a baseball. You know, if you've ever seen highlights of a batter getting hit by a pitch going 95 to 100 miles an hour, it can be pretty painful. Can even cause serious injury if it if it's there's a hit to the head or a weaker part of the body, or maybe you've been in a snowball fight and gotten hit and you know that can hurt, uh, especially if you get hit in the face. But but instead of it being snow, just try to imagine it. Imagine what it would feel like if it was just solid ice. Well, no wonder the text describes the trees in the fields as being shattered. No wonder no wonder men uh, no wonder men and animals were killed. And all of the vegetation destroyed. Now, who knows how fast the hail was falling out of the sky? According to an article I found in the Dallas Morning News from April 12, 2016, the speed of falling hailstones depends on their size. Marble-sized hail falls at around 20 miles an hour. Baseball-sized hail can exceed 100 miles an hour. Hail size is measured by comparing it to common spherical objects such as peas, quarters, golf balls, and grapefruits. The largest hailstone recorded in the United States fell on July 23, 2010 in Vivian, South Dakota. It was 8 inches in diameter and weighed 1 pound 15 ounces. Well, following this this hailstorm, the fields of Egypt would have looked like a war zone. And that's essentially what they were. Or if you've ever seen a, you know, like, like a World War II movie and there's artillery firing and, and, and trees just shattering and then everything is a wasteland. That, that's kind of the, probably what we should be picturing here. So how does Pharaoh respond then in verses 27 and 28? Pharaoh sent and called to Moses and to Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. Yahweh is righteous and I and my people are guilty. Entreat to Yahweh and great has been the thunder of God and hail. And I will send out you and you shall no longer remain. So in this response of Pharaoh's, we're hearing something pretty different, aren't we? And he's asked Moses and Aaron to entreat to Yahweh before, back in chapter 8 and verse 8, in relation to frogs. 
But before he asks for intercession, Pharaoh confesses his sin and guilt. And there appears to be a measure of genuineness to it. You know, don't read this as Pharaoh pretending to be sorry. The text doesn't express it that way, but that it's sincere, at least at this point. And the omissions that Pharaoh makes here are somewhat stunning. You know, he confesses his sin and guilt, including the guilt of his people. He declares that Yahweh is righteous, that Yahweh is just, that he is right. He also attributes the thunder and hail to God. So it's clear to him where they came from. Verse 27 began with his sending for Moses and Aaron. Verse 28 ends with his promise to send out y'all. The the you there is plural. So he's referring to the Hebrews, the sons of Israel, and that they should no longer remain or stand. That's a word that's been used a a few times throughout our our section this morning. Interestingly enough, it's the same word used back in verse 11 of the magicians not being able to stand before Moses. So there's this wordplay and imagery here of Israel not being able to stand before Pharaoh, so to speak. So Pharaoh makes these confessions and promises, and what's the response in verses 29 and 30? And Moses said to him, When I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to Yahweh. The thunder will cease, and hail will not be any longer, so that you may know that to Yahweh belongs the earth. And you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear before the face of Yahweh God. So clearly Moses is in the city, probably the capital where Pharaoh resides. And when Moses has departed the city, he'll spread out his hands. He'll take the posture of prayer of supplication. And notice the poetic contrast. You know, the the hand and staff raised up to bring the plagues in verses 22 and 23. And now the hands spread out in petition for the plague to cease. And back in verse 14, the plagues were sent to cause Pharaoh to know. And now the cessation of the plague is in order for Pharaoh to know. And notice the duality of the knowing and how both testify to Yahweh's indisputable identity, that there's none like him in the earth and that the earth belongs to him. But then what does Moses say that he knows in verse 30? That Pharaoh and his servants don't really fear before the face of Yahweh, that they they don't really fear his presence Um, And then there are these contrasting faces. The face of Pharaoh before whom Moses is sent in verse 13, and now the face of Yahweh God near the end of the passage. And notice the inclusion of Pharaoh's servants again, and particularly their unbelief. Now, we're not surprised to read about Pharaoh's unbelief, but his servants are now lumped in with him, which, of course, really shouldn't surprise us either, as Pharaoh's unbelief would be contagious after a fashion. But then we get this sidebar, this parenthetical statement in verses 31 and 32, which can almost seem out of place, but is helpful nonetheless. The flax and the barley were struck, for the barley were in barley ears, and the flax in bud. And the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they are late. Now notice the little chiasm in verse 31 with the mention of flax and barley and then barley and flax. Given this bit of horticultural or agricultural information, scholars place this plague sometime early uh, to mid-February when flax and barley would have been nearing harvest. Once again, Egypt's economy and national life are significantly impacted. Flax would have been used, uh, of course, for making linen or clothing. Barley would have been used for making bread and beer. And with Egypt's reputation, again, as the breadbasket of the ancient world, we can see how this would more directly, uh, this plague would more directly impact them. Of course, not at all is lost yet because the wheat and spelt weren't at all affected, which is a bit of mercy in the midst of judgment, isn't it? And really, we see mercy lined 
throughout the entire story. Verse 33. And Moses went out from Pharaoh, the city, and spread out his hands to Yahweh, and ceased the thunder and the hail, and rain did not pour out upon the earth. So Moses, Moses takes the posture of intercession, and the text expresses the fact that the storm ceased immediately. And did you happen to notice that two times here and in verse um, here and in verse 29, that the text makes a point of telling us that Moses' intercession takes place outside of the city. Why couldn't Moses intercede right there in front of Pharaoh? You know, why the express mention of being out of the city? Well, in light of other biblical expressions along similar lines, salvation can't come from within, but has to be from the outside. You know, we can note some intercessions for cities under threat of destruction that takes place outside the city. There's Abraham intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah. Of course, the, that city eventually comes under judgment. Uh, Jonah travels east of Nineveh to see what would happen to it. Of course, it was spared. But even more, think about Jesus and Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem couldn't save itself. And we've noted on several occasions already the connections between the unbelief of Pharaoh and Egypt and the religious leaders in Jerusalem of, and Israel of Jesus' day. Well, those connections are clearer still. But where does Jesus ultimately go? Outside of the camp, outside of the city, where he's crucified. That's where salvation is ultimately to be found. There's no hope in the city, in Jerusalem, particularly in the temple, even though the Jews thought so, treating it as their lucky rabbit's foot. You know, where does a large chunk of Jesus' instruction regarding the destruction of the city and temple take place? outside of the city, to the east on the Mount of Olives. And what did Jesus predict? That the devastation against Jerusalem, that there would be a great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Jesus pronounced judgment against Jerusalem, as did the apostles, which gave people time to get out. They were shown mercy. And many believed, of course plenty didn't, continuing in their hardness of heart and unbelief. Similarly, what do we find at the end of our text in Exodus 9? And Pharaoh saw that ceased the rain and the hail and the thunder, and he increased the sin, and he caused to be heavy his heart, he and his servants, and strengthened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not send out the sons of Israel, as had spoken Yahweh by the hand of Moses." Back in verse 16, Yahweh says the plagues are in order for, Yah, uh, for Pharaoh to see his power. And now when Pharaoh sees the plague stopping, he increases his sin. His heart becomes heavy once again. And he continues in his rebellion and unbelief and drags down his servants with him who are mentioned yet again. Structurally, there's a bit of a chiasm across verses 33 and 34 with the mention of thunder, hail, and rain, and then rain, hail, and thunder. But earlier mention was made that Pharaoh seemed genuinely sorry and seems to make a genuine confession of sin and shows real remorse. But how does that square with what we're reading now? Well, basically this. Pharaoh softens during the scourges, but then rehardens. When God relents, then Pharaoh hardens his heart. And this makes sense on a number of levels, doesn't it? It may even be something we ourselves have witnessed or experienced. 
Now, Pharaoh is starting to come to grips with who Yahweh is, and he confesses as much to a degree. And as more and more evidence is before him, he is sinning against more and more light. Similarly, the Jews of Jesus' day were, well, they were expecting the Messiah, knowing the time of his appearing was in keeping with Daniel's, appear, uh, Daniel's prophecy. But consider the overwhelming evidence of Jesus' three-year ministry. You know, Jesus performed so many miracles that there were too many to write down. He gave sight to the blind, even raised the dead. There was overwhelming testimony that he was doing only what God could do. Those opponents claimed he was of the devil. They knew Jesus was the Messiah, but were determined in their sin, in their hardness of heart, just as we read about with Pharaoh. We see this theme of unbelief in the life of Israel shortly after the Exodus, most notably in the wilderness, but it, it even carries over into the time of Judges. What happens again and again? What's the, what's the cycle we find there? Some of your children who were in my Sunday school class last year can teach you the chant. So Israel engages in false worship and unbelief. Oppressors come. People cry out in prayer and repentance. They seem really sorry and promise new allegiance to, to, to Yahweh. Yahweh sends a judge to deliver them. The judge dies and the people return their unbelief. And the cycle goes over and over again. That sounds pretty similar to the pattern we keep encountering with Pharaoh and the plagues, doesn't it? Well, in light of all of this, which is quite a bit of ground to cover, what are some final implications from our text this morning? Behold again the mercy of God and how it's part and parcel with His character. Many years ago, I heard a story of a hunter who happened upon an interesting scene. He found himself near a river and out upon a network of roots. And he observed a holy man attempting to rescue a scorpion that was trapped upon the root system and would be swept away in the rising waters. However, every time the man stooped down to pick up the scorpion, it would attempt to sting him. This happened a number of times until finally the hunter called to the holy man and asked him why he didn't just let the scorpion drown. The holy man exclaimed, It's the scorpion's nature to sting, but is my nature to save. And likewise with our Lord and God. It's his nature to save. It's his nature to show mercy. It's his nature to be patient. And so, so don't be surprised if judgment doesn't always look like we think it should or come as quickly as we might be inclined to prescribe. Then finally consider that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, even as David proclaims in Psalm 24. That reality was claimed, proclaimed to, to Pharaoh through Moses. It's proclaimed in the gospel today, even as we declare with Christ that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. The earth belongs to Jesus, not Satan. It's his. It's, it belongs to Christ. It, it doesn't belong to Mother Nature, nor does the earth belong to the earth, whatever that could possibly mean. And, and in the propaganda blitz of climate change and environmentalism, etc., we do well to remember this fundamental reality. Now, here's this declaration thousands of years ago and in direct correlation to the plagues on Egypt, and it's still to be our testimony today. As men and women, we've been made in the image of God and are called to be His stewards, ruling and subduing the earth, which belongs to our Creator, God and King. 
That hasn't changed since the sixth day of creation. And we can rest assured that the course of this world will continue. See time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. In fact, you know, this, this calling that's been placed upon us, that's been given to us, it's what's leveled up in the coming of Christ, in the incarnation of the Son of God. When the word that spoke the world, the earth, and all of creation into being became flesh and tabernacled among us. The earth is the Lord's, and you belong to Him. And so go and, and live your life in His world to, to, to the fullest, pursuing your vocation and pursuing this vocation of ruling and subduing the earth that He's placed on each and every one of us in obedience to His Word, the Word wherein we find the path and pattern for life. Let us pray. Father in heaven, continue to direct us in the truth. Indeed, Your Word is truth. And may we love the truth all the more and may You implant it deeply in our souls, in our hearts, that we might bear fruit to Your glory and honor. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.